Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. When Mike comes gallantly to the rescue of old Mr. Waller, can Smith save him when things get sticky? P.G. Woodhouse Today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. With the pandemic still pounding at the door, we need your help more than ever. It really helps us out. And in case you've forgotten, a $5 donation gets you an $8 coupon code for any audiobook in the store. Thank you so much for stepping up and helping us to keep going strong. And feel free to check out our free category at classictalesaudiobooks.com, featuring several longer titles to help you cope with pandemic fatigue. And on that point, you can now get masks printed with artwork from your favorite Classic Tales titles, if that's your idea of a good time. Links can be found at our website. Again, ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com App users who absolutely need to get their Halloween monster fix can hear The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. In the special features for this week's episode. Open up this week's episode and tap the box that looks like a present. And now, Smith in the City, Part 5 of 6, by P.G. Woodhouse. Chapter 18, Smith makes a discovery. "'Women,' said Smith, helping himself to trifle, and speaking with the air of one launched upon his special subject, "'are, one must recollect, like... like... well, in fact, just so. Passing on lightly from that conclusion, let us turn for a moment to the rights of property.' in connection with which Comrade Preble and yourself had so much that was interesting to say this afternoon. Perhaps you—he bowed in Comrade Preble's direction—would resume, for the benefit of Comrade Jackson, a novice in the cause but earnest, your very lucid— Comrade Preble beamed and took the floor. Mike began to realise that, till now, he had never known what boredom meant— There had been moments in his life which had been less interesting than other moments, but nothing to touch this for agony. Comrade Preble's address streamed on like water rushing over a weir. Every now and then there was a word or two which was recognisable, but this happened so rarely that it amounted to little. Sometimes Mr. Waller would interject a remark, but not often. 
He seemed to be of the opinion that Comrade Prebbles was the mastermind, and that to add anything to his views would be in the nature of painting the lily and gilding the refined gold. Mike himself said nothing. Smith and Edward were equally silent. The former sat like one in a trance, thinking his own thoughts, while Edward, who, prospecting on the sideboard, had located a rich biscuit mine, was too occupied for speech. After about twenty minutes, during which Mike's discomfort changed to a dull resignation, Mr. Wallace suggested a move to the drawing-room, where Ada, he said, would play some hymns. The prospect did not dazzle Mike, but any change, he thought, must be for the better. He had sat staring at the ruin of the blancmange so long that it had begun to hypnotize him. Also, the move had the excellent result of eliminating the snub-nosed Edward, who was sent to bed. His last words were in the form of a question addressed to Mike, on the subject of the hypotenuse and the square upon the same. "'A remarkably intelligent boy,' said Smith. "'You must let him come to tea at our flat one day.' I may not be in myself, I have many duties which keep me away, but Comrade Jackson is sure to be there, and will be delighted to chat with him. On the way upstairs, Mike tried to get Smith to himself for a moment, to suggest the advisability of an early departure, but Smith was in close conversation with his host. Mike was left to Comrade Preble, who apparently had only touched the fringe of his subject in his lecture in the dining-room. When Mr. Waller had predicted hymns in the drawing-room, he had been too sanguine or too pessimistic. Of Ada, when they arrived, there were no signs. It seemed that she had gone straight to bed. Young Mr. Richards was sitting on the sofa, moodily turning the leaves of a photograph album, which contained portraits of Master Edward Waller in geometrically progressing degrees of repulsiveness, here in frocks looking like a gargoyle, there in sailor suit, looking like nothing on earth. The inspection of these was obviously deepening Mr. Richard's gloom, but he proceeded doggedly with it. Comrade Preble backed the reluctant Mike into a corner, and, like the ancient mariner, held him with a glittering eye. Smith and Mr. Waller, in the opposite corner, were looking at something with their heads close together. Mike definitely abandoned all hope of a rescue from Smith, and tried to buoy himself up with the reflection that this could not last forever. Hours seemed to pass, and then at last he heard Smith's voice say goodbye to his host. He sprang to his feet. Comrade Preble was in the middle of a sentence, but this was no time for polished courtesy. He felt that he must get away and at once. "'I fear,' Smith was saying, that we must tear ourselves away. We have greatly enjoyed our evening. You must look us up at our flat one day, and bring Comrade Preble. If I am not in, Comrade Jackson is certain to be, and he will be more than delighted to hear Comrade Preble speak further on the subject of which he is such a master. Comrade Preble was understood to say that he would certainly come. Mr. Waller beamed. Mr. Richards, still steeped in gloom, shook hands in silence. Out in the road, with the front door shut behind them, Mike spoke his mind. "'Look here, Smith,' he said definitely. "'If being your confidential secretary and adviser, 
is going to let me in for any more of that sort of thing, you can jolly well accept my resignation. The orgy was not to your taste, said Smith sympathetically. Mike laughed, one of those short, hollow, bitter laughs. I am at a loss, Comrade Jackson, said Smith, to understand your attitude. You fed sumptuously. You had fun with the crockery, that knockabout act of yours with the water jug was alone worth the money. And you had the advantage of listening to the views of a master of his subject. What more do you want? What on earth did you land me with that man Preble for? Land you? Why, you courted his society. I had practically to drag you away from him. When I got up to say goodbye, you were listening to him with bulging eyes. I never saw such a picture of rapt attention. Do you mean to tell me, Comrade Jackson, that your appearance belied you? That you were not interested? Well, well, how we misread our fellow creatures. I think you might have come and lent a hand with Preble. He was a bit thick. I was too absorbed with Comrade Waller. We were talking of things of vital moment. However, the night is yet young. We will take this cab, wend our way to the west, seek a café, and cheer ourselves with light refreshments. Arrived at a café, whose window appeared to be a sort of museum of every kind of German sausage, they took possession of a vacant table and ordered coffee. Mike soon found himself soothed by his bright surroundings, and gradually his impressions of Blamange, Edward, and Comrade Preble faded from his mind. Smith, meanwhile, was preserving an unusual silence, being deep in a large, square book of the sort in which press cuttings are pasted. As Smith scanned its contents, a curious smile lit up his face. His reflections seemed to be of an agreeable nature. Hello, said Mike. What have you got hold of there? Where did you get that? Comrade Waller very kindly lent it to me. He showed it to me after supper, knowing how enthusiastically I was attached to the cause. Had you been less tensely wrapped up in Comrade Preble's conversation, I would have desired you to step across and join us. However, you now have your opportunity. But what is it? asked Mike. It is the record of the meetings of the Tulse Hill Parliament, said Smith impressively. A faithful record of all they said, all the votes of confidence they passed in the government, and also all the nasty knocks they gave it from time to time. What on earth's the Tulse Hill Parliament? It is, alas, said Smith in a grave, sad voice, no more. In life it was beautiful. But now it has done the Tom Bowling Act. It has gone aloft. We are dealing, Comrade Jackson, not with the live, vivid present, but with the far-off, rusty past. And yet, in a way, there is a touch of the live, vivid present mixed up in it. I don't know what the dickens you're talking about, said Mike. Let's have a look, anyway. Smith handed him the volume, and, leaning back, sipped his coffee and watched him. At first, Mike's face was bored and blank, but suddenly an interested look came into it. Aha, said Smith. Who's Bickersdyke? Anything to do with our Bickersdyke? No other than our genial friend himself. Mike turned the pages, reading a line or two on each. Hello, he said, chuckling. 
He lets himself go a bit, doesn't he? He does, acknowledged Smith. A fiery, passionate nature, that of Comrade Bickersdyke. He's simply cursing the government here, giving them frightful beans. Smith nodded. I noticed the fact myself. But what's it all about? As far as I can glean from Comrade Waller, said Smith, about twenty years ago, when he and Comrade Bickersdyke worked hand in hand as fellow clerks at the New Asiatic, they were both members of the Tulse Hill Parliament, that powerful institution. At that time, Comrade Bickersdyke was as fruity a socialist as Comrade Waller is now. Only, apparently, as he began to get on a bit in the world, he altered his views to some extent as regards the iniquity of freezing on to a decent share of the doubloons. And that, you see, is where the dim and rusty past begins to get mixed up with the live, vivid present. If any tactless person were to publish those very able speeches made by Comrade Bickersdyke, when a bulwark of the Tulsil Parliament, our revered chief would be more or less caught bending, if I may employ the expression, as regards his chances of getting in as unionist candidate at Kenningford. You follow me, Watson? I rather fancy the light-hearted electors of Kenningford, from what I have seen of their rather acute sense of humour, would be, as it were, all over it. It would be very, very trying for Comrade Bickersdyke if these speeches of his were to get about. You aren't going to. I shall do nothing rashly. I shall merely place this handsome volume among my treasured books. I shall add it to my Books That Have Helped Me series, because I fancy that in an emergency it may not be at all a bad thing to have about me. And now, he concluded, as the hour is getting late, perhaps we had better be shoving off for home. Chapter 19 The Illness of Edward Life in a Bank is at its pleasantest in the winter. When all the world outside is dark and damp and cold, the light and warmth of the place are comforting. There is a pleasant air of solidity about the interior of a bank. The green-shaded lamps look cosy, and the outside world, offering so few attractions, the worker, perched on his stool, feels that he is not so badly off after all. It is when the days are long, and the sun beats hot on the pavement, and everything shouts to him how splendid it is out in the country, that he begins to grow restless. Mike, except for a fortnight at the beginning of his career in the new Asiatic Bank, had not had to stand the test of sunshine. At present, the weather being cold and dismal, he was almost entirely contented. Now that he had got into the swing of his work, the days passed very quickly, and with his life after office hours, he had no fault to find it all. His life was very regular. He would arrive in the morning just in time to sign his name in the attendance book before it was removed to the accountant's room. That was at ten o'clock. From ten to eleven, he would potter. There was nothing going on at that time in his department, and Mr. Waller seemed to take it for granted that he should stroll off to the postage department and talk to Smith, who had generally some fresh grievance against the ring-wearing Bristow to wear. 
From eleven to half-past twelve, he would put in a little gentle work. Lunch, unless there was a rush of business, or Mr. Waller happened to suffer from a spasm of conscientiousness, could be spun out from half-past twelve to two. More work from two to half-past three. From half-past three till half-past four, tea in the tea-room with a novel, and from half-past four till five, either a little more work or more pottering, according to whether there was any work to do or not. It was by no means an unpleasant mode of spending a late January day. Then there was no doubt that it was an interesting little community, that of the new Asiatic Bank. The curiously amateurish nature of the institution lent a certain air of light-heartedness to the place. It was not like one of those banks whose London office is their main office, where stern business is everything, and a man becomes a mere machine for getting through a certain amount of routine work. The employees of the new Asiatic Bank, having plenty of time on their hands, were able to retain their individuality. They had leisure to think of other things besides their work. Indeed, they had so much leisure that it is a wonder they thought of their work at all. The place was full of quaint characters. There was West, who had been requested to leave Haleybury, owing to his habit of borrowing horses and attending meets in the neighbourhood, the same being always out of bounds and necessitating a complete disregard of the rules respecting evening chapel and lock-up. He was a small, dried-up youth, with black hair plastered down on his head. He went about his duties in a costume which suggested the sportsman of the comic papers. There was also Hignett, who added to the meagre salary allowed him by the bank by singing comic songs at the minor music halls. He confided to Mike his intention of leaving the bank as soon as he had made a name, and taking seriously to the business. He told him that he had knocked them at the Bedford the week before, and in support of the statement showed him a cutting from the era, in which the writer said that other acceptable turns were the bounding zouaves, Steingruber's dogs, and Arthur Hignett. Mike wished him luck. And there was Raymond, who dabbled in journalism, and was the author of Straight Talks to Housewives in Trifles, under the pseudonym of Lady Gussie. Rag, who believed that the earth was flat, and addressed meetings on the subject in Hyde Park on Sundays, and many others, all interesting to talk to of a morning when work was slack and time had to be filled in. Mike found himself by degrees growing quite attached to the new Asiatic bank. One morning, early in February, he noticed a curious change in Mr. Waller. The head of the cash department was, as a rule, mildly cheerful on arrival, and apt, excessively, Mike thought, though he always listened with polite interest, to relate the most recent sayings and doings of his snub-nosed son, Edward. No action of this young prodigy was withheld from Mike. He had heard, on different occasions, how he had won a prize at his school for general information, which Mike could well believe, how he had trapped young Mr. Richards, now happily reconciled to Ada, with an ingenious verbal catch, and how he had made a sequence of diverting puns on the name of the new curate, during the course of that cleric's first Sunday afternoon visit. On this particular day, however, the cashier was silent and absent-minded. 
he answered Mike's good morning mechanically, and sitting down at his desk, stared blankly across the building. There was a curiously grey, tired look on his face. Mike could not make it out. He did not like to ask if there was anything the matter. Mr. Waller's face had the unreasonable effect on him of making him feel shy and awkward. Anything in the nature of sorrow always dried Mike up and robbed him of the power of speech. Being naturally sympathetic, he had raged inwardly in many a crisis at this devil of dumb awkwardness, which possessed him and prevented him from putting his sympathy into words. He had always envied the cooing readiness of the hero on the stage when anyone was in trouble. He wondered whether he would ever acquire the knack of pouring out a limpid stream of soothing words on such occasions. At present he could get no farther than a scowl and an almost offensive gruffness. The happy thought struck him of consulting Smith. It was his hour for pottering, so he pottered round to the postage department, where he found the old Etonian eyeing with disfavour a new satin tie, which Bristow was wearing that morning for the first time. "'I say, Smith,' he said, "'I want to speak to you for a second. Smith rose. Mike led the way to a quiet corner of the telegrams department. "'I tell you, Comrade Jackson,' said Smith, "'I am hard-pressed. The fight is beginning to be too much for me. After a grim struggle, after days of unremitting toil—' I succeeded yesterday in inducing the man Bristow to abandon that rainbow waistcoat of his. Today I enter the building, blithe and buoyant, worn, of course, from the long struggle, but seeing with aching eyes the dawn of another, better era, and there is Comrade Bristow in a satin tie. It's hard, Comrade Jackson, it's hard, I tell you. Look here, Smith, said Mike. I wish you'd go around to the cash and find out what's up with old Waller. He's got the hump about something. He's sitting there looking absolutely fed up with things. I hope there's nothing up. He's not a bad sort. It would be rot if anything rotten's happened. Smith began to display a gentle interest. So, other people have troubles as well as myself, he murmured musingly. I'd almost forgotten that. Comrade Waller's misfortunes cannot but be trivial compared with mine. Possibly it will be as well to ascertain their nature. I will reel round and make inquiries. Good man, said Mike. I'll wait here. Smith departed, and returned, ten minutes later, looking more serious than when he had left. His kid's ill, poor chap, he said briefly. Pretty badly, too, from what I can gather. Pneumonia. Waller was up all night. He oughtn't to be here at all today. He doesn't know what he's doing half the time. He's absolutely fagged out. Look here, you'd better nip back and do as much of the work as you can. I shouldn't talk to him much if I were you. Buck along. Mike went. Mr. Waller was still sitting staring out across the aisle. There was something more than a little gruesome in the sight of him. He wore a crushed, beaten look as if all the life and fight had gone out of him. A customer came to the desk to cash a check. The cashier shuffled the money to him under the bars with the air of one whose mind is elsewhere. Mike could guess what he was feeling and what he was thinking about. The fact that the snub-nosed Edward was, without exception, the most repulsive small boy he had ever met in this world, where repulsive small boys crowd and jostle one another, 
did not interfere with his appreciation of the cashier's state of mind. Mike's was essentially a sympathetic character. He had the gift of intuitive understanding, where people of whom he was fond were concerned. It was this which drew to him those who had intelligence enough to see beyond his sometimes rather forbidding manner, and to realise that his blunt speech was largely due to shyness. In spite of his prejudice against Edward, he could put himself into Mr. Waller's place and see the thing from his point of view. Smith's injunction to him not to talk much was unnecessary. Mike, as always, was rendered utterly dumb by the sight of suffering. He sat at his desk, occupying himself as best he could with the driblets of work which came to him. Mr. Waller's silence and absentness continued unchanged. The habit of years had made his work mechanical. Probably few of the customers who came to cash checks suspected that there was anything the matter with the man who paid them their money. After all, most people look on the cashier of a bank as a sort of human slot machine. You put in your check and out comes money. It is no affair of yours whether life is treating the machine well or ill that day. The hours dragged slowly by till five o'clock struck, and the cashier, putting on his coat and hat, passed silently out through the swing doors. He walked listlessly. He was evidently tired out. Mike shut his ledger with a vicious bang and went across to find Smith. He was glad the day was over. Chapter 20 Concerning a Cheque Things never happen quite as one expects them to. Mike came to the office next morning, prepared for a repetition of the previous day. He was amazed to find the cashier not merely cheerful, but even exuberantly cheerful. Edward, it appeared, had rallied in the afternoon, and when his father had got home, had been out of danger. He was now going along excellently, and had stumped Ada, who was nursing him, with a question about the Thirty Years' War, only a few minutes before his father had left to catch his train. The cashier was overflowing with happiness and goodwill toward his species. He greeted customers with bright remarks on the weather and snappy views on the leading events of the day, the former tinged with optimism, the latter full of a gentle spirit of toleration. His attitude toward the latest actions of His Majesty's government was that of one who felt that, after all, there was probably some good even in the vilest of his fellow creatures, if one could only find it. Altogether, the cloud had lifted from the cash department. All was joy, jollity, and song. The attitude of Comrade Waller, said Smith on being informed of the change, is reassuring. I may now think of my own troubles. Comrade Bristow has blown into the office today in patent leather boots with white kid uppers, as I believe the technical term is, and to that, the fact that he is still wearing the satin tie, the waistcoat, and the ring, and you will understand why I have definitely decided this morning to abandon all hope of his reform. Henceforth my services, for what they are worth, are at the disposal of Comrade Bickersdyke. My time from now onward is his. He shall have the full educative value of my exclusive attention." I give Comrade Bristow up. Made straight for the corner flag, you understand, he added as Mr. Rossiter emerged from his lair, and centred, and Sandy Turnbull headed a beautiful goal. 
I was just telling Jackson about the match against Blackburn Rovers, he said to Mr. Rossiter. Just so, just so, but get on with your work, Smith. We are a little behindhand. I think perhaps it would be as well not to leave it just yet. I will leap at it at once, said Smith cordially. Mike went back to his department. The day passed quickly. Mr. Waller, in the intervals of work, talked a good deal, mostly of Edward, his doings, his sayings, and his prospects. The only thing that seemed to worry Mr. Waller was the problem of how to employ his son's almost superhuman talents to the best advantage. Most of the goals towards which the average man strives struck him as too unambiguous for the prodigy. By the end of the day, Mike had had enough of Edward. He never wished to hear the name again. We do not claim originality for the statement that things never happen quite as one expects them to. We repeat it now because of its profound truth. The Edwards pneumonia episode, having ended satisfactorily, or rather being apparently certain to end satisfactorily, for the invalid, though out of danger, was still in bed, Mike looked forward to a series of days unbroken by any but the minor troubles of life. For these he was prepared. What he did not expect was any big calamity. At the beginning of the day there were no signs of it. The sky was blue and free from all suggestions of approaching thunderbolts. Mr. Waller, still chirpy, had nothing but good news of Edward. Mike went for his morning stroll round the office, feeling that things had settled down and had made up their mind to run smoothly. When he got back, barely half an hour later, the storm had burst. There was no one in the department at the moment of his arrival, but a few minutes later he saw Mr. Waller come out of the manager's room and made his way down the aisle. It was his walk which first gave any hint that something was wrong. It was the same limped, crushed walk which Mike had seen when Edward's safety still hung in the balance. And as Mr. Waller came nearer, Mike saw that the cashier's face was deadly pale. Mr. Waller caught sight of him and quickened his pace. Jackson, he said. Mike came forward. Do you remember? He spoke slowly and with an effort. Do you remember a check coming through the day before yesterday for a hundred pounds with Sir John Morrison's signature? Yes, it came in the morning, rather late. Mike remembered the check perfectly well, owing to the amount. It was the only three-figure check which had come across the counter during the day. It had been presented just before the cashier had gone out to lunch. He recollected the man who had presented it, a tallish man with a beard. He had noticed him particularly because of the contrast between his manner and that of the cashier. The former had been so very cheery and breezy, the latter so dazed and silent. Why, he said, it was a forgery, muttered Mr. Waller, sitting down heavily. Mike could not take it in all at once. He was stunned. All he could understand was that a far worse thing had happened than anything he could have imagined. A forgery, he said. A forgery, and a clumsy one. Oh, it's hard. I should have seen it on any other day but that. I could not have missed it. 
They showed me the check in there just now. I could not believe that I had passed it. I don't remember doing it. My mind was far away. I don't remember the check or anything about it, yet there it is. Once more, Mike was tongue-tied. For the life of him, he could not think of anything to say. Surely he thought he could find something in the shape of words to show his sympathy, but he could find nothing that would not sound horribly stilted and cold. He sat silent. Sir John is in there, went on the cashier. He is furious. Mr. Bickersdyke, too, they are both furious. I shall be dismissed. I shall lose my place. I shall be dismissed. He was talking more to himself than to Mike. It was dreadful to see him sitting there, all limp and broken. I shall lose my place. Mr. Bickersdyke has wanted to get rid of me for a long time. He never liked me. I shall be dismissed. What can I do? I'm an old man. I can't make another start. I'm good for nothing. Nobody will take an old man like me. His voice died away. There was a silence. Mike sat, staring miserably in front of him. Then, quite suddenly, an idea came to him. The whole pressure of the atmosphere seemed to lift. He saw a way out. It was a curious, crooked way, but at that moment it stretched clear and broad before him. He felt light-hearted and excited, as if he were watching the development of some interesting play at the theatre. He got up, smiling. The cashier did not notice the movement. Somebody had come in to cash a cheque, and he was working mechanically. Mike walked up the aisle to Mr. Bickersdyke's room and went in. The manager was in his chair at the big table. Opposite him, facing slightly sideways, was a small, round, very red-faced man. Mr. Bickersdyke was speaking as Mike entered. "'I can assure you, Sir John,' he was saying. He looked up as the door opened. "'Well, Mr. Jackson?' Mike almost laughed. The situation was tickling him. "'Mr. Waller has told me,' he began. "'I have already seen Mr. Waller.' "'I know. He told me about the cheque I came to explain.' "'Explain?' "'Yes. He didn't cash it at all. "'I don't understand you, Mr. Jackson.' "'I was at the counter when it was brought in,' said Mike. "'I cashed it.' Chapter 21 Smith Makes Inquiries Smith, as was his habit of a morning, when the fierce rush of his commercial duties had abated somewhat, was leaning gracefully against his desk, musing on many things, when he was aware that Bristow was standing before him. Focusing his attention with some reluctance upon this blot on the horizon, he discovered that the exploiter of rainbow waistcoats and satin ties was addressing him. "'I say, Smithy,' said Bristow, he spoke in rather an awed voice. "'Say on, Comrade Bristow,' said Smith graciously. "'You have our ear. You would seem to have something on your chest in addition to that Neapolitan ice garment, which I regret to see you still flaunt. If it is one tithe as painful as that, you have my sympathy. Jerk it out, Comrade Bristow.' "'Jackson isn't half-copping it from old Bick. "'Isn't—what exactly did you say? "'He's getting it hot on the carpet.' "'You wish to indicate,' said Smith, 
that there is some slight disturbance, some passing breeze between comrades Jackson and Bickersdyke? Bristow chuckled. Breeze? <laughs> Blooming hurricane, more like it. I was in Bick's room just now with a letter to sign, and I tell you, the fur was flying all over the bally shop. There was old Bick cursing for all he was worth, and a little red-faced buffer puffing out his cheeks in an armchair. We all have our hobbies, said Smith. Jackson wasn't saying much. He jolly well hadn't a chance. Old Bick was shooting it out fourteen to the dozen. I have been privileged, said Smith, to hear Comrade Bickersdyke speak both in his sanctum and in public. He has, as you suggest, a ready flow of speech. What exactly was the cause of the turmoil? I couldn't wait to hear. I was too jolly glad to get away. Old Bick looked at me as if he could eat me, snatched the letter out of my hand, signed it, and waved his hand at the door as a hint to hop it, which I jolly well did. He had started jawing Jackson again before I was out of the room. While applauding his hustle, said Smith, I fear that I must take official notice of this. Comrade Jackson is essentially a sensitive plant, highly strung, neurotic. I cannot have his nervous system jolted and disorganized in this manner, and his value as a confidential secretary and adviser impaired, even though it be only temporarily. I must look into this. I will go and see if the orgy is concluded. I will hear what Comrade Jackson has to say on the matter. I shall not act rashly, Comrade Bristow. If the man Bickersdyke is proved to have had good grounds for his outbreak, he shall escape uncensured. I may even look in on him and throw him a word of praise. But if I find, as I suspect, that he has wronged Comrade Jackson— I shall be forced to speak sharply to him. Mike had left the scene of battle by the time Smith reached the cash department, and was sitting at his desk in a somewhat dazed condition, trying to clear his mind sufficiently to enable him to see exactly how matters stood as concerned himself. He felt confused and rattled. He had known, when he went to the manager's room to make his statement, that there would be trouble— but then trouble is such an elastic word. It embraces a hundred degrees of meaning. Mike had expected sentence of dismissal, and he had got it. So far he had nothing to complain of. But he had not expected it to come to him riding high on the crest of a great frothing wave of verbal denunciation. Mr. Bickersdyke, through constantly speaking in public, had developed the habit of fluent denunciation to a remarkable extent. He had thundered at Mike as if Mike had been His Majesty's government or the encroaching alien, or something of that sort. And that kind of thing is a little overwhelming at short range. Mike's head was still spinning. It continued to spin, but he never lost sight of the fact round which it revolved, namely, that he had been dismissed from the service of the bank. And for the first time, he began to wonder what they would say about this at home. Up till now the matter had seemed entirely a personal one. He had charged in to rescue the harassed cashier in precisely the same way as that in which he had dashed in to save him from Bill, the stone-flinging scourge of Clapham Common. Mike's was one of those direct, honest minds which are apt to concentrate themselves on the crisis of the moment, and to leave the consequences out of the question entirely. What would they say at home? That was the point. 
Again, what could he do by way of earning a living? He did not know much about the city and its ways, but he knew enough to understand that summary dismissal from a bank is not the best recommendation one can put forward in applying for another job. If he did not get another job in the city, what could he do? If it were only summer, he might get taken on somewhere as a cricket professional. Cricket was his line. He could earn his pay at that. But it was very far from being summer. He had turned the problem over in his mind till his head ached, and had eaten in the process one-third of a wooden penholder, when Smith arrived. "'It has reached me,' said Smith, "'that you and Comrade Bickersdyke have been seen doing the Hackenschmidt gotch act on the floor. When my informant left, he tells me, Comrade B had got a half-Nelson on you, and was biting pieces out of your ear. Is that so?' Mike got up. Smith was the man he felt to advise him in this crisis. Smith's was the mind to grapple with his hard case. "'Look here, Smith,' he said. "'I want to speak to you. "'I'm in a bit of a hole, and perhaps you can tell me what to do. "'Let's go out and have a cup of coffee, shall we? "'I can't tell you about it here.' "'An admirable suggestion,' said Smith. "'Things in the postage department are tolerably quiescent at present. "'Naturally, I shall be missed if I go out. "'But my absence will not spell irretrievable ruin, "'as it would at a period of greater commercial activity.' Comrades Rossiter and Bristow have studied my methods. They know how I like things to be done. They are fully competent to conduct the business of the department in my absence. Let us, as you say, scud forth. We will go to a Mecca. Why so called, I do not know, nor indeed do I ever hope to know. There we may obtain, at a price, a passable cup of coffee, and you shall tell me your painful story. The Mecca except for the curious aroma which pervades all meccas, was deserted. Smith, moving a box of dominoes onto the next table, sat down. Dominoes, he said, is one of the few manly sports which have never had great attractions for me. A cousin of mine, who secured his chess blue at Oxford, would, they tell me, have represented his university in the dominoes match also, had he not unfortunately dislocated the radius bone of his bazooka while training for it, Except for him, there has been little Domino's talent in the Smith family. Let us merely talk. What of this slight brass rag parting to which I alluded just now? Tell me all. He listened gravely while Mike related the incidents which had led up to his confession and the results of the same. At the conclusion of the narrative, he sipped his coffee in silence for a moment. This habit of taking on to your shoulders the harvest of other people's bloomers he said meditatively. It's growing upon you, Comrade Jackson. You must check it. It is like dram-drinking. You begin in a small way by breaking school rules to extract Comrade Jellicoe, perhaps the supremest of all blitherers I have ever met, from a hole. If you had stopped there, all might have been well. But the thing once started fascinated you. Now you have landed yourself with a splash in the very centre of the Oxo, in order to do a good turn to Comrade Waller. You must drop it, Comrade Jackson. When you were free and without ties, it did not so much matter. But now that you are confidential secretary and adviser to a Shropshire Smith, the thing must stop. Your secretarial duties must be paramount. Nothing must be allowed to interfere with them. Yes, the thing must stop before it goes too far. 
It seems to me, said Mike, that it has gone too far. I've got the sack. I don't know how much farther you wanted to go. Smith stirred his coffee before replying. True, he said. Things look perhaps a shady rocky just now, but all is not yet lost. You must recollect that Comrade Bickersdyke spoke in the heat of the moment. That generous temperament was stirred to its depths. He did not pick his words, but calm will succeed storm, and we may be able to do something yet. I have some little influence with Comrade Bickersdyke. Wrongly, perhaps, added Smith modestly. He thinks somewhat highly of my judgment. If he sees that I am opposed to this step, he may possibly reconsider it. What Smith thinks today, is his motto, I shall think tomorrow. However, we shall see. I bet we shall, said Mike ruefully. There is, moreover, continued Smith, another aspect to the affair. When you were being put through it in Comrade Bickersdyke's inimitably breezy manner, Sir John What's-His-Name was, I am given to understand, present. Naturally, to pacify the aggrieved Bart, Comrade B had to lay it on regardless of expense. In America, as possibly you are aware, there is a regular post of mistake clerk, whose duty it is to receive in the neck anything that happens to be coming along when customers make complaints. He is hauled into the presence of the foaming customer, cursed and sacked. The customer goes away appeased, the mistake clerk, if the harangue has been unusually energetic, applies for a rise of salary. Now, possibly in your case, in my case, interrupted Mike, there was none of that rot. Bickersdyke wasn't putting it on. He meant every word. Why, dash it all, you know yourself he'd be only too glad to sack me, just to get some of his own back with me. Smith's eyes opened in pained surprise. Get some of his own back, he repeated. Are you insinuating, Comrade Jackson, that my relations with Comrade Bickersdyke are not of the most pleasant and agreeable nature possible? How do these ideas get about? I yield to nobody in my respect for our manager. I may have had occasion from time to time to correct him in some trifling matter, but surely he is not the man to let such a thing rankle? No. I prefer to think that Comrade Biggersdyke regards me as his friend and well-wisher, and will lend a courteous ear to any proposal I see fit to make. I hope shortly to be able to prove this to you. I will discuss this little affair of the cheque with him at our ease at the club, and I shall be surprised if we do not come to some arrangement. Look here, Smith, said Mike earnestly. For goodness sake, don't go playing the goat. There's no earthly need for you to get lugged into this business. Don't you worry about me. I shall be all right. I think, said Smith, that you will, when I have chatted with Comrade Bickersdyke. Chapter 22 And Take Steps On returning to the bank, Mike found Mr. Waller in the grip of a peculiarly varied set of mixed feelings. Shortly after Mike's departure for the Mecca, the cashier had been summoned once more into the presence, and had there been informed that as apparently he had not been directly responsible for the gross piece of carelessness by which the bank had suffered so considerable a loss, here Sir John puffed out his cheeks like a meditative toad, the matter, as far as he was concerned, was at an end. On the other hand, 
Here Mr. Waller was hauled over the coals for incredible rashness in allowing a mere junior subordinate to handle important tasks like the paying out of money and so on, till he felt raw all over. However, it was not dismissal. That was the great thing, and his principal sensation was one of relief. Mingled with the relief was sympathy for Mike, gratitude for him for having given himself up so promptly, and a curiously dazed sensation, as if somebody had been hitting him on the head with a bolster. All of which emotions, taken simultaneously, had the effect of rendering him completely dumb when he saw Mike. He felt that he did not know what to say to him, and as Mike, for his part, simply wanted to be left alone and not compelled to talk, conversation was at something of a standstill in the cash department. After five minutes it occurred to Mr. Waller that perhaps the best plan would be to interview Smith. Smith would know exactly how matters stood. He could not ask Mike point-blank whether he had been dismissed, but there was the possibility that Smith had been informed and would pass on the information. Smith received the cashier with a dignified kindliness. "'Oh, uh, Smith,' said Mr. Waller, "'I wanted just to ask you about Jackson.' Smith bowed his head gravely. "'Exactly,' he said. "'Comrade Jackson.' I think I may say that you have come to the right man. Comrade Jackson has placed himself in my hands, and I am dealing with his case. A somewhat tricky business, but I shall see him through. Has he... <laughs> Mr. Waller hesitated. You were saying, said Smith, does Mr. Bickersdyke intend to dismiss him? At present, admitted Smith, there is some idea of that description floating, nebulously as it were, in Comrade Biggersdyke's mind. Indeed, from what I gather from my client, the push was actually administered, in so many words, but tush, and possibly bah! We know what happens on these occasions, do we not? You and I are students of human nature, and we know that a man of Comrade Biggersdyke's warm-hearted type is apt to say in the heat of the moment a great deal more than he really means. Men of his impulsive character cannot help expressing themselves in times of stress, with a certain generous strength, which those who do not understand them are inclined to take a little too seriously. I shall have a chat with Comrade Bickersdyke at the conclusion of the day's work, and I have no doubt that we shall both laugh heartily over this little episode. Mr. Waller pulled at his beard, with an expression on his face that seemed to suggest that he was not quite so confident on this point. He was about to put his doubts into words when Mr. Rossiter appeared, and Smith, murmuring something about duty, turned again to his ledger. The cashier drifted back to his own department. It was one of Smith's theories of life, which he was accustomed to propound to Mike in the small hours of the morning with his feet on the mantelpiece, that the secret of success lay in taking advantage of one's occasional slices of luck, in seizing, as it were, the happy moment. When Mike, who had had the passage to write out ten times at Riken on one occasion as an imposition, reminded him that Shakespeare had once said something about there being a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, etc., etc., Smith had acknowledged with an easy grace that possibly Shakespeare had got on to it first, and that it was but one more proof of how often great minds thought alike. Though waiving his claim to the copyright of the maxim, he nevertheless had a high opinion of it, 
and frequently acted upon it in the conduct of his own life. Thus, when approaching the senior conservative club at five o'clock, with the idea of finding Mr. Bickersdyke there, he observed his quarry entering the Turkish baths, which stand some twenty yards from the club's front door. He acted on his maxim, and decided, instead of waiting for the manager to finish his bath, before approaching him on the subject of Mike, to corner him in the baths themselves. He gave Mr. Bickersdyke five minutes' start. Then, reckoning that by that time he would probably have settled down, he pushed open the door and went in himself. And having paid his money, and left his boots with the boy at the threshold, he was rewarded by the sight of the manager emerging from a box at the far end of the room, clad in the mottled towels which the bather, irrespective of his personal taste in dress, is obliged to wear in a Turkish bath. Smith made for the same box. Mr. Bickersdyke's clothes lay at the head of one of the sofas, but nobody else had staked out a claim. Smith took possession of the sofa next to the manager's, then, humming lightly, he undressed and made his way downstairs to the hot rooms. He rather fancied himself in towels. There was something about them which seemed to rather suit his figure. They gave him, he thought, rather a debonair look. He paused a moment before the looking-glass to examine himself, with approval, then pushed open the door of the hot rooms and went in. Chapter 23. Mr. Bickersdyke Makes a Concession Mr. Bickersdyke was reclining in an easy chair in the first room, staring before him in the boiled fish manner, customary in a Turkish bath. Smith dropped into the next seat with a cheery, "'Good evening!' The manager started as if some firm hand had driven a brad all into him. He looked at Smith with what was intended to be a dignified stare. But dignity is hard to achieve in a couple of party-coloured towels. The stare did not differ to any great extent from the conventional boiled fish look alluded to above. Smith settled himself comfortably in his chair. "'Fancy finding you here,' he said pleasantly. "'We seem always to be meeting. "'To me,' he added with a reassuring smile, "'it is a great pleasure. "'A very great pleasure indeed.' We see too little of each other during office hours, not that one must grumble at that. Work before everything. You have your duties, I mine. It is merely unfortunate that those duties are not such as to enable us to toil side by side, encouraging each other with word and gesture. However, it is idle to repine. We must make the most of these chance meetings when the work of the day is over. Mr. Biggersdyke, heaved himself up from his chair, and took another at the opposite end of the room. Smith joined him. "'There's something pleasantly mysterious to my mind,' said he chattily, in a Turkish bath. "'It seems to take one out of the hurry and bustle of the everyday world. It is a quiet backwater in the rushing river of life. I like to sit and think in a Turkish bath, except, of course, when I have a congenial companion to talk to, as now. To me—' Mr. Bickersdyke rose and went into the next room. "'To me,' continued Smith, again following, and seating himself beside the manager, "'there is, too, something eerie in these places. There is a certain sinister air about the attendants. They glide rather than walk. They say little. Who knows what they may be planning and plotting? That drip, drip again. 
It may be merely water, but how are we to know that it is not blood? It would be so easy to do away with a man in a Turkish bath. Nobody has seen him come in. Nobody can trace him if he disappears. These are uncomfortable thoughts, Mr. Bickersdyke. Mr. Bickersdyke seemed to think them so. He rose again and returned to the first room. I have made you restless, said Smith, in a voice of self-reproach, when he had settled himself once more by the manager's side. I am sorry. I will not pursue the subject. Indeed, I believe that my fears are unnecessary. Statistics show I understand that large numbers of men emerge in safety every year from Turkish baths. There was another matter of which I wish to speak to you. It is a somewhat delicate matter, and I am only encouraged to mention it to you by the fact that you are so close a friend of my father's. Mr. Bickersdyke had picked up an early edition of an evening paper— left on the table by his side by a previous bather, and was, to all appearances, engrossed in it. Smith, however, not discouraged, proceeded to touch upon the matter of Mike. "'There was,' he said, "'some little friction I hear in the office today, in connection with a cheque.' The evening paper hid the manager's expressive face, but from the fact that the hands holding it tightened their grip, Smith deduced that Mr. Bickersdyke's attention was not wholly concentrated on the city news. Moreover, his toes wriggled. And when a man's toes wriggle, he is interested in what you are saying. All these petty breezes, continued Smith sympathetically, must be very trying to a man in your position, a man who wishes to be left alone in order to devote his entire thought to the niceties of the higher finance. It is as if Napoleon, while planning out some intricate scheme of campaign, were to be called upon in the midst of his meditations to bully a private for not cleaning his buttons. Naturally, you were annoyed. Your giant brain, wrenched temporarily from its proper groove, expended its force in one tremendous reprimand of Comrade Jackson. It was as if one had diverted some terrific electric current which should have been controlling a vast system of machinery, and turned it on to annihilate a black beetle. In the present case, of course, the result is as might have been expected. Comrade Jackson, not realising the position of affairs, went away with the absurd idea that all was over, and you meant all you said, briefly that his number was up. I assured him that he was mistaken, but no, he persisted in declaring that all was over— that you had dismissed him from the bank. Mr. Bickersdyke lowered the paper and glared bulbously at the old Etonian. Mr. Jackson is perfectly right, he snapped. Of course I dismissed him. Yes, yes, said Smith. I have no doubt that at the moment you did work the rapid push. What I am endeavouring to point out is that Comrade Jackson is under the impression that the edict is permanent that he can hope for no reprieve. Nor can he. You don't mean, I mean what I say. Ah, I quite understand, said Smith, as one who sees that he must make allowances. The incident is too recent. The storm has not yet had time to expend itself. You have not had leisure to think the matter over coolly. It is hard, of course, to be cool in a Turkish bath— your ganglions are still vibrating. Later, perhaps. Once and for all, growled Mr. Bickersdyke, 
the thing is ended. Mr. Jackson will leave the bank at the end of the month. We have no room for fools in the office. You surprise me, said Smith. I should not have thought that the standard of intelligence at the bank was extremely high. With the exception of our two selves, I think that there are hardly any men of real intelligence on the staff. And Comrade Jackson is improving every day. Being as he is under my constant supervision, he is rapidly developing a stranglehold on his duties, which I have no wish to discuss the matter any further. No, no, quite so, quite so. Not another word. I am dumb. There are limits, you see, to the uses of impertinence, Mr. Smith. Smith started. You are not suggesting. You do not mean that I... I have no more to say. I shall be glad if you will allow me to read my paper. Smith waved a damp hand. I should be the last man, he said stiffly, to force my conversation on another. I was under the impression that you enjoyed these little chats as keenly as I did. If I was wrong... He relapsed into a wounded silence. Mr. Bickersdyke resumed his perusal of the evening paper, and presently, laying it down, rose and made his way to the room where muscular attendants were in waiting to perform that blend of jiu-jitsu and catcher's catch-can, which is the most valuable and at the same time most painful part of a Turkish bath. It was not till he was resting on his sofa, swathed from head to foot in a sheet and smoking a cigarette, that he realised that Smith was sharing his compartment. He made the unpleasant discovery— just as he had finished his first cigarette and lighted his second. He was blowing out the match when Smith, accompanied by an attendant, appeared in the doorway, and proceeded to occupy the next sofa to himself. All that feeling of dreamy peace, which is the reward one receives for allowing oneself to be melted like wax and kneaded like bread, left him instantly. He felt hot and annoyed. To escape was out of the question. Once one has been scientifically wrapped up by the attendant and placed on one's sofa, one is a fixture. He lay scowling at the ceiling, resolved to combat all attempt at conversation with a stony silence. Smith, however, did not seem to desire conversation. He lay on his sofa motionless for a quarter of an hour, then reached out for a large book which lay on the table and began to read. When he did speak, he seemed to be speaking to himself. Every now and then he would murmur a few words, sometimes a single name. In spite of himself, Mr. Bickersdyke found himself listening. At first, the murmurs conveyed nothing to him. Then suddenly a name caught his ear. Strowther was the name, and somehow it suggested something to him. He could not say precisely what. It seemed to touch some chord of memory. He knew no one of the name of Strowther. He was sure of that. And yet it was curiously familiar. An unusual name, too. He could not help feeling that at one time he must have known it quite well. Mr. Strowther, murmured Smith, said that the honourable gentleman's remarks would have been nothing short of treason if they had not been so obviously the mere babblings of an irresponsible lunatic cries of order, order, and a voice, sit down, fathead. For just one moment, Mr. Bickersdyke's memory poised motionless, like a hawk about to swoop. Then it darted at the mark, 
everything came to him in a flash. The hands of the clock whizzed back. He was no longer Mr. John Bickersdyke, manager of the London branch of the New Asiatic Bank, lying on a sofa in the Cumberland Street Turkish baths. He was Jack Bickersdyke, clerk in the employ of Messrs. Norton and Biggleswade, standing on a chair and shouting, Order! Order! in the Masonic Room of the Red Lion at Tulse Hill, while the members of the Tulse Hill Parliament, divided into two camps, yelled at one another, and young Tom Barlow, in his official capacity as Mr. Speaker, waved his arms dumbly and banged the table with his mallet in his efforts to restore calm. He remembered the whole affair as if it had happened yesterday. It had been a speech of his own which had called forth the above expression of opinion from Strowther. He remembered Strowther now, a pale, spectacled clerk in Baxter and Abrams, an inveterate upholder of the throne, the House of Lords and all constituted authority. Strowther had objected to the socialistic sentiments of his speech in connection with the budget, and there had been a disturbance unparalleled even in the Tulse Hill Parliament, where disturbances were frequent and loud. Smith looked across at him with a bright smile. "'They report you verbatim,' he said, "'and rightly. A more able speech I have seldom read. I like the bit where you call the royal family bloodsuckers. Even then it seems you knew how to express yourself fluently and well.' Mr. Biggersdyke sat up. The hands of the clock had moved again, and he was back in what Smith had called the live, vivid present. "'What have you got there?' he demanded. It is a record, said Smith, of the meeting of an institution called the Tulse Hill Parliament. A bright, chatty little institution, too, if one may judge by these reports. You in particular, if I may say so, appear to have let yourself go with refreshing vim. Your political views have changed a great deal since those days, have they not? It is extremely interesting. A most fascinating study for political students. "'When I send these speeches of yours to the clarion—' "'Mr. Bickersdyke bounded on his sofa. "'What?' he cried. "'I was saying,' said Smith, "'that the clarion would probably make a most interesting comparison "'between these speeches and those you have been making at Kenningford.' "'I—what—I forbid you to make any mention of these speeches!' "'Smith hesitated. "'It would be great fun seeing what the papers said,' he protested. "'Great fun!' "'It is true,' mused Smith, "'that in a measure it would dish you at the election. "'From what I saw of those light-hearted lads at Kenningford the other night, "'I should say they would be so amused "'that they would only just have enough strength left "'to stagger to the pole and vote for your opponent.' "'Mr. Biggersdyke broke out in a cold perspiration. "'I forbid you to send those speeches to the papers,' he cried. "'Smith reflected that. "'You see,' he said at last, "'it is like this. "'The departure of Comrade Jackson, "'my confidential secretary and adviser, "'is certain to plunge me into a state of the deepest gloom. "'The only way I can see at present, "'by which I can ensure even a momentary lightning of the inky cloud, "'is the sending of these speeches to some bright paper like the Clarion. "'I feel certain that their comments would ring at any rate— a sad, sweet smile from me, possibly even a hearty laugh. I must, therefore, look on these very able speeches of yours in something of the light of an antidote. They will stand between me and black depression. 
Without them, I am in the cart. With them, I may possibly buoy myself up. Mr. Bickersdyke shifted uneasily on his sofa. He glared at the floor, and he eyed the ceiling as if it were a personal enemy of his. Finally, he looked at Smith. Smith's eyes were closed in peaceful meditation. Very well, said he at last. Jackson shall stop. Smith came out of his thoughts with a start. You are observing, he said. I shall not dismiss Jackson, said Mr. Bickersdyke. Smith smiled winningly. Just as I had hoped, he said. Your very justifiable anger melts before reflection. The storm subsides, and you are at leisure to examine the matter dispassionately. Doubts begin to creep in. Possibly, you say to yourself, I have been too hasty, too harsh. Justice must be tempered with mercy. I have caught Comrade Jackson bending, you add, still to yourself. But shall I press home my advantage too ruthlessly? No, you cry. I will abstain and I applaud your action. I like to see this spirit of gentle toleration. It is bracing and comforting. And for these excellent speeches, he added, I shall, of course, no longer have any need of their consolation. I can lay them aside. The sunlight can now enter and illumine my life through more ordinary channels. The cry goes round, Smith is himself again. Mr. Bickersdyke said nothing unless a snort of fury may be counted as anything. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Smith in the City, Part 5 of 6, by P.G. Woodhouse. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. We like to give more than we get. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>